right, riddle me this, Kev. What's one of the first upgrades you should do to your vehicle? What is it? What do you go for? Well, you might think power, but ultimately, from a smart and safe perspective, definitely the brakes. Yeah, no doubt. Upgraded braking systems can really transform a vehicle's performance and honestly give you better peace of mind behind the wheel in any situation. You know, from the track to off-road trails, even the morning commute, every single vehicle deserves performance brakes at an affordable price. And no matter what your vehicle or driving style, PowerStop has complete brake upgrade kits for you. So head to PowerStop.com, fill in your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use brake finder to be matched with complete kits and components that are low-dust, noise-free, and feature upgraded stopping power. That's right. You could join the thousands of other drivers that have already transformed their vehicle into a stopping powerhouse today with PowerStop. PowerStop.com, brake upgrades made easy. Welcome to Two Guys Garage Podcast, a production of iHeartRadio and Brenton Productions. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. And man, I am high five and I'm stoked because today we got a good buddy, a great car guy. And I'm telling you, man, I call him, you know, my nickname for him is the mastermind of Meekum, bro. He is, uh, he's one of the lead, you know, TV analyst guys, commentators, and this guy knows everything about cars. It's hard to fathom how you could know that much stuff, right? I mean, I've been doing this car thing forever. Most of us, you know, car geeks, we're always on the internet. We're always building, doing something, going to shows, and I can't even scratch the surface on what these guys just roll off their tongues every day on the job, you know, at these auctions. It's amazing. Yeah, man. Have you ever been to one of these auctions before, a Mecham auction? No, I've only watched on TV, you know, and you get this, like, probably a little bit of jilted perspective of how amazing <laughs> and wild and crazy it is, you know? It's like, yeah, it's like yeah. going to a three-ring circus, you know? There's just action and noises and stuff going on. It could be the most boring thing ever in the world, and I would have no idea. I would just think, wow, what am I missing here, you know? Well, I'll tell you, because you're a car guy, um, it's everything but boring. It is so ridiculously exciting. It is one of those level 10 type scenarios where, dude, the whole time, whether it's, you know, I'm not talking just brand loyalty. I'm talking about the chrome, the fit and finish, the hot rods, the pers just persona in all these cars, people's personality cut and carved in them for rat rods. You know, you got the latest and greatest in Audis and Beamers and Benzos, but you got classic, rich, robust, old school iron in the form of muscle cars, man. And I'm telling you, it is nothing but pure energy because they run them through you know a lot faster have you ever sold a car at an auction no uh-uh never no, just that exciting you know craigslist ad or whatever you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> well I, I tell you man i sold a couple cars when i was a kid at an auction and you know i i had okay results bought a couple cars at an auction this last, you know, this last year, because of what I do in my regular job, my nine to five, I do a, you know, rock morning show on a radio station in Denver, and these guys come through often. And so literally, these guys come through year after year, and I've become really good friends with the entire staff. Well, last year, I put a car in. I've gone to them several years in a row. And last year, I dropped the 1970 Hemi Dodge Charger in the mix. Um, it went fairly good. I actually was hoping it would go a little bit higher, but... I bought a couple cars there too, so the the reason I lifted the reserve on it was like, all in all, I made out really good for the weekend, and you know, it's, it was a great experience. It's one of those things that, man, when you're in there and you're feeling the heat and the pressure, 
It's pure adrenaline. Oh, I, I imagine it to be like a weekend in Vegas. You know, your pockets are loaded and you're ready to just throw it down on the tables and just see what luck strikes, you know. And, and there's probably even, you know, more interesting elements in there because, you know, here comes some crazy barn find that rolls out. You know, here's some, you know, super famous or super rare car that comes out. You know, you're picking up the history on it. You're getting to see the thing. But yeah, as far as the adrenaline from everything they're doing, probably to just to pump up the whole scene to then, yeah. man, that's that's your, you know, that's your ride on the line or that's your dollar on the <laughs> line. Like, what am I going to walk out here with? A bigger stack of cash, a nothing in my wallet, like a cool ass car. What is yeah. going to happen today? And I'm sure you go in there with a plan, you know, and it's just like what Mike Tyson says. Some, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth or whatever. Yeah, yeah, man. Everybody's got a plan until like, they get hit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure you walk in there with your stack of cash and you're like, I'm going for a 70 Chevelle, maybe a 71. And next thing you walk out with, who knows what? Because, oh, yeah. And it just caught your attention or it was a great price or you just caught up in the excitement or whatever happened, you know? Yeah, I have bought a couple cars just because. I couldn't believe they went through. So, and John will tell you, man, it is really exciting because a lot of their cars roll through it, no reserve. So that means the car is going to sell. And man, that puts a lot of excitement, a lot of eyes, a lot of, you know, interest in it. And so I bought cars just because it was no reserve and I got them cheap. Yeah. I can't wait to get some of the inside scoop because, you know, you're giving me some from having been, you know, a few times. Uh, you know, yeah. but John, he lives and breathes it, you know, so what we see on TV is probably some, you know, roll up of, you know, one to three hours or whatever the content is versus however many yeah. day or days where you probably have times where it's like, man, there's not much going on. we got a couple of lame cars and then over oh. the top, you know, so you'd be interesting to get the perspective, man. Where's the real deal? Where's the real deal happening? Great thing is they run them through. You know, a car can only be on the on the spot for like a minute, 90 seconds. And they're like, it's it's out. So it, they run them through fast. So it's always, you know, it's just fast-paced atmosphere. It's big decisions made at, at split time. You're like, uh, okay, sell it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, right. woo. It's, it, is, it, it is pure excitement, entertainment, adrenaline. You know, and, and it's just fun, man. I, I really recommend anybody going and, and just checking it out. So question for you. We got to ask him, too, and we'll, you know, take a break and get him on the line. What do you think? The great part about John is I've had him on my radio show, and we've had just days where people have flooded the phones asking him what a certain or particular car was worth. What, you know, uh, a 1970 Buick GS, you know, stage one or a 70 Chevelle, you know, four speed 454 or a, you know, a Hemi 70 truck. What these cars are worth. What's bringing big money? Is it euros that you should go out and wrap your, you know, arms around and embrace? Is it still American muscle cars? Is it vintage cars from the 70s and 80s? Are they starting to see traction? John has a pulse on every single bit of it. Dude, I, I just checked myself, and I have eked up to the edge of my seat. I'm not even at an auction. I'm just talking about it. I'm like <laughs> right up on the edge of my chair going, ooh, ooh, ooh. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited for John to come on, man. We're going to get some inside skinny, man. Okay. So look, here's the deal when we get back from break. I'm doing, I'm doing today's podcast from my garage. So, uh, first question out of the gate when we get when we get John on, all right, I'm gonna tell him all the cars that are around me right now that I'm surrounded by right now, and he's gonna put a he's gonna put a price on it. Oh man, 
Oh, man. <laughs> You're about to feel really good about your retirement plan. I'm going to feel terrible. Pretty, yeah. Pretty weak. Uh, we'll play a game or two next. It will be John from Meekum. You know him as the lead commentator, man. We take a quick break. We're right back at it. It's the Two Guys Garage podcast with Kevin Bird and Willie B. It's the Two Guys Garage podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. And we are joined by John Cranham from Meekum Auction. He's the lead commentator. Every single car that rolls across the auction block, he's got not only commentator sort of words on, but he's got he's got numbers, production specs. He knows every piece of chrome, every badge, every detail of the car. He is laid up, and, and I'm telling you, nobody is stronger in the force of facts than John is with Meekum. I mean, it's definitely a privilege to have you on, John. Hey, man, always a pleasure to hang out with other car guys. <laughs> so how did you first get involved with Meekum? How did you get that sort of, how did you become a big spoke in the, in the whole hub and wheel assembly there? Well, that's a really good question that I get asked a lot because, you know, there are a lot of people out there uh, in, in the car land that have big knowledge of cars. And I'm lucky enough with my little sliver of automotive knowledge and my employment full-time with Meekum Auctions allows me to represent. That's what I really feel like I do is represent the real true car guys. Um, since I was a little kid, two years old, my mom said I was obsessed with cars. My dad sold cars when I was a little kid out in L.A. And I just, from a young age, I just soaked up information like a sponge. And, you know, it was over 60 years later, that has not let up. And now for the past 13 years, uh, as lead commentator analyst for Meekum Auctions on NBCSN, I get to share, you know, my not only knowledge, a lot of folks do, but uh, my passion and my and my love for it. It was all Dana Meekum's idea. Went on TV in 2008. I was the director of consignments. He says, hey, John, I think you do a good job on the show. I'd watched other televised auctions uh, like a lot of us do uh, before Meekum obviously was on TV. And I was the proverbial armchair quarterback. I'm the guy that's sitting back, you know, kind of being a little bit critical of what the other guys are saying. Some of the information not accurate all the time. So what I strive to do is to be not only accurate, but to try to be relevant, not to repeat myself too much. I mean, we see a lot of the same cars, you know, mid-60s Mustangs, late-60s Camaros, Corvettes of all vintages, etc. And so I try not to repeat the same data over and over again, keep it conversational, and knock on wood, it's work. All right, man, question for you. With your ultimate brain on muscle cars and, you know, 50s, 60s, 70-era rides, I'm going to give you a few cars in my shop, okay? Cool. You're going to tell me if I need to keep them or sell them and how my retirement plan is looking. <laughs> All right? Behind me, 57 Chevy Bel Air. It's perfect. Well, Body on it is gorgeous. It's got a 454, 400, 12-boat uh, rear end. Beside it, 59 Dodge Custom Royal D500, 64 V-Dub Bug, 67 Barracuda, 68 Dodge Charger, a true NASCAR edition four-speed car, um, 70 Dodge Charger. Hold on, hold on, Willie. You're going across the blocks a lot faster than John's used to see. That's seeing, what I'm man. hoping, He's, man. I'm hoping it gives me a... <laughs> you should have got 90 seconds to think about this stuff, man. Uh, well, <laughs> the, the great thing is, is, John, you can throw any car at him, man. He, he's seen it go across the block. And, you know, I'm just playing when I say give me a price. But at the same time, dude, I'm telling you, you've seen some of the rarest, some of the coolest, some of the most unreal rides. And I'm certain you've seen some battle of egos that will blow anybody away, correct? Well, that happens, you know, and some of the cars that you've mentioned as part of your herd, 
common cars, you know, 57 Chevys and 59 Chevys, pretty, pretty easy to kind of forecast values of those cars ranges that they're, those are standard bears. Your, uh, your Mopars, other than the 67 Cuda, same kind of a thing. It's, you know, it's kind of the oddball stuff. VWs, depending on condition, have come on really strong recently. But uh, that 67 Cuda, they, they kind of languished, not until 70 uh did those cars really start to get recognized yeah. so they're good value and i'm gonna just stick my neck out and say probably not poised much for appreciation yeah I, I would agree with you i think the chargers are hollywood's car and the big money car and i think uh aside from yep. that a couple of the big fans i got but you know question are muscle cars still sort of the go-to resource can is there still a hungry i don't know vast market for for muscle cars are they still chomping at the bit well yes and they represent sort of the the core of the electric car hobby uh back 30 40 years ago it was model t's model a's then street rods uh starting in the 1970s uh the, right after the decline of the muscle car they were almost hit cult status right away as gee they're not making them anymore of course we're in muscle car era 2.0 right now with Great factory performance cars. You can go down to you know the showroom and buy a brand new. But there's some lure, guys. Some some uh, attraction to a vintage car. Now the trend, of course, that no surprise, no breaking news here that continues to grow is the resto mod movement. More and more aftermarket companies getting on board with pretty easy to integrate plug and play, updated yeah. modern engine transmission, suspension, comfort items such as air conditioning, etc. Everything available now. So that blend of old and new seems to be one of the major trends occurring in the traditional muscle car market right now. So, John, give us some, you know, high-level insight on, you know, just the mentality going into these auctions because, you know, you keep hearing a lot about the resto mods picking up steam. And, you know, I would have been there in my head, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, as soon as you could start to put upgrades on cars, but it didn't seem like they held any value until kind of recently. I mean, what's really changing, you know, in people's mindsets and, and just the market in general that people are finally figuring out, well, I really want something cool and old, but I could have it drive a lot more like, you know, a modern car. Why is it taking so long for people to figure that out? Or why are people not having wanted to spend the money I guess for those in the past, what's changing? Yeah, that was the, that was the big change. You know, we could go back, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, and it was still where heavily modifying a vintage car was sacrilegious. That was a bad thing. It got a lot of negativism. Um, and of course, fast forward to today, uh, Corvettes, uh, Camaros, Mustangs, Mopars of all types, they will fetch typically, unless it's an original, uh, you know, Hemi car or something like that. They're going to fetch more money resto modded than they were if they were left stock. And that uh, indicates that, like all markets, everything supply and demand, that there is a strong market for uh, exactly what you said, a vintage car that drives and operates like a new car with all the conveniences, performance handling, all of that stuff. And that has grown to the point where people will pay to get one of these cars. They don't want to wait to build one. They don't want to have to jump through all the hoops that is, and it's easier to go out and spend the money and buy it turnkey ready to go at an auction or elsewhere and live happily ever after. And, you know, I thought this was going to be kind of a short-term trend, but boy, have I been wrong. This is still gaining a lot of traction. Go to SEMA every year, which we do. Uh, we're exhibitors there, and uh, it just continues to grow and expand. 
and get momentum. Modifying vintage vehicles of modern standards, very, very acceptable, not acceptable in the past. But hey, it's a new world. Well, there's probably a, probably a lot of factors in there, you know, demographics being probably a huge driver in a lot of cases. But, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, there was a whole bunch of turds on the road. So you really didn't have, you know, from new cars, you really didn't have the perspective of, wow, this is what a performance car could feel like, you know, and then you probably have to have certain buyers that, you know, buy something original and they own it for a little while and go, man, I really didn't drive that much because it drives like, you know, a 50 year old car. So there's probably a learning curve in there for people to wake up a little bit, you know? It, it is totally right on. That's, that's really the part two. We know from a fact from researching and looking at our uh, bidder registration and our consignment registration data where we've got personal information, name, address, age, all that stuff. We have to have that on file. And we run reports, and I would say that generally speaking, uh, it's a slightly younger demographic by about 10 years, about 50 years old right now is sort of the median age of a resto mod buyer, while a traditional unrestored or not necessarily restored, but unmodified vintage car buyer is going to be about, as I'm just talking general rules, about 10 years older. So it definitely is a younger market that's, that's grown up with the convenience of fuel injection and overdrive transmissions and really good brakes. You made another really good point. You know, you, you look at one of these old vintage cars that's stock. They look great. You drive it with drum brakes and, uh, you know, manual steering, no air conditioning, and bias supply tires. And it looks great and it looks period authentic, but the driving experience is not the same as a contemporary performance car or a vintage car modified with updated goodies. And, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, mix it's a combination of all these factors is what continues to drive this market it's it's going to keep going yeah that's what i was going to ask so you think the appetite for those type builds and platforms will continue to grow and we'll continue to see it where where lineage or heritage isn't as important as it used to be just as long as it's old school lines chrome it's got little patina or whatnot whatever as long as you could upgrade the suspension drivetrain ac gauges data info and all that you got a, you know, you got a, a, a top tier money getting car. Well, it is, and it really all depends on. Of course, they're all different. Not one of them is the same, which is kind of cool. But we can relate back to we go back twenty years ago, which would have been maybe the peak of the street ride movement, where resto mods, which the, the platforms generally, again, really generalizing here, mid fifties to early seventies represents the bulk of the cars that are being resto modded today and the most of the cars that are being converted and upgraded are not cars that have original drivetrains or were real super sports or real right uh, right right you know, real high performance what's versions. available out there <laughs> right and they're those are lower price cars you know you buy a 70 chevelle dress it as an ss yank out the stock 307 that the thing had the next thing you know it's an ss resto mod and uh, it's a cool car that's going to bring more money if it's done well. Quality also a huge issue. Quality of components and quality of build continue to be very strongly looked after by these buyers uh, if they're going to really step up. And when I mean expensive and stepping up, you start getting close to that six-figure price range. These cars got to be state-of-the-art in components and also in build quality. And more and more guys, more and more shops, more and more companies getting involved in this stuff all the time. It's the modern era street rod is what it is. Well, I imagine, you know, I'm going to really crudely just throw the crowd, you know, the buyer into two categories. So one might be, you know, the collector, 
right? And so they're going to go in with a certain mindset. And then you got the owner driver. Do you think that mix has changed over the last, you know, whatever, 30 years, you know, just kind of looking backwards and looking forwards, uh, you know, cause you got to have guys, you know, collecting cause they're thinking about it like art, you know, what is this thing going to be worth? I don't care to drive it. I'm going to put it in my museum. I'm going to put it in my collection. I just want it to have, you know, a gain in value somewhere. I'm going to make some money on it and it's cool and it's fun and I'm gambling and it's exciting. And then you have probably the guys that are buying a lot of these resto mods that they're like, they're a legit owner slash driver. They're like, man, I really love that car. I love the persona. I love how it makes me feel. And I'm going to have a fun time driving it. You know, is, is that a good divide there between kind of like big chunks of people? And is that, you know, consistently kind of staying in the same size or is one kind of growing out of the other one? You know, it's interesting you say that because about a third of our buyers, about a third of our bidding audience are, are guys that are going to buy a car and drive it. Another third of our audience are collectors, exactly what you said. Cars probably not going to be driven. And if the cars are coming out of a collection and being for sale at auction, more than likely those cars have not been driven. And that's both good and bad. Good part is the car presumably has been preserved very well while it's been in storage. The bad news is that somebody's going to buy that car and start driving it. They're probably going to have some issues with things. Now, nothing major, but they're probably going to have issues with leaks and belts and hoses and other things like that. So, yes, the trend is is for ironclad investment grade type cars to be put in collections, coveted, looked at, not driven, and the resto mods. If somebody buys a resto mod, puts it away, and thinks they're going to bring it out five or ten years and sell it, make some money on it. Uh, they're probably going to be disappointed. Yeah, the trends are changing so fast. Yeah. Hey, somebody should smack their mama. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, John, man, hey, uh, we got to take a break right now. And eat. what you say is so true because having been at several Mecham auctions, you see that. You see that diversity in the crowd and the people that are buying. You see guys that are so there for the collector cars. They don't even look twice at a resto mod. And you see the guys that are a little bit younger, you know, got a little facial hair, maybe a black T-shirt or a tattoo or seven. And those guys are like, hey, I'm after the resto mods. And then the younger crowd that's after, you know, all kinds of crazy platforms. Could be a 73 Datsun with a LS in it. Could be yep. a Mazda with a Coyote in it. Could be a, you know, C10 pickup truck with a straight six in it. You never know because they're all over the board. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, how about you sort of cue us up to some cars that are gaining some big steam as far as value goes. You know, some hidden gems that people can still get relatively affordable, you know, in the ten dollars to $20,000 range that may be worth some money down the road. Doesn't have to be Chevrolet, doesn't have to be, you know, the big three. Just uh, have some, you know, top of mind brands and some rides, okay? Glad to. All right, man. Back in just a minute to Two Guys Garage Podcast, Kevin Bird and Willie B. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I'm Willie B. And we have the man to myth, the legend, John Craman from Mecham Auctions. He's the lead commentator. He's got something to say about every single car that rose across the auction block. And real fast, man, before we get into cars and cars you believe are going to gain a lot of value in years to come, what is the biggest battle of egos that you've ever witnessed? Because I know more than anything, when people get bitten on the cars and when their honey is sitting there pulling on their shoulder like, Honey, I want that pink Cadillac, and you better bring that home. That means more than anything else. So tell me about the biggest battle of egos that you've ever witnessed. 
Well, this is going to ring, uh, strike a chord with uh, all the Mopar fans out there. But uh, we go back a year or so ago uh, to a certain uh, Mod Top uh, Dodge Dart Swinger. Uh, Mod Top was an option, a floral option, part of that uh, flower power uh, Mod Pop Art. From the late 60s, uh, Mopar had uh, an option package. This wasn't particularly expensive, where you had a, literally a flowered top. It literally was a flowered top and seed inserts to match your formats and some other things as well. And uh, we had a really nice little 340 Dart Swinger, darling little car, factory air, lots of options, lots of originality. It had a pre-option estimate, guys, of sixty to seventy-five thousand dollars. Honestly, rolled across the block. I thought that was a little bit on the high side, but it was a really good car. It brought four hundred thousand dollars to the wow. top. Both our collectors were in the audience. They wanted the car. It was the number one best battle we've ever had that I've ever witnessed, anyway. At Mika auctions of doing television over thirteen years, it was insane, and that. That story is still being talked about out there in the uh, electric car world today. What well, what was that like? What were they? I mean, when you guys are sitting there calling and the bids going up, and it's over, you know, sixty, eighty, a hundred thousand. It goes over one fifty. It goes over two hundred. Are you losing your mind at the time? You had to be like blowing a gasket. It's it's just incredible. Uh, it you know that kind of craziness is rare. I mean, it does happen. It's happened before. And it's happened since. But that one really stands out. And that's just a classic example. Two high-end collectors, both of them very well healed. It was not about the money. It was about having that car as part of their collection. Hey, it could be maybe a lifelong dream of having one of those special cars, especially with a lot of performance goodies that the little swinger had on it. You know, a lot of those cars were six cylinders and three eighteens. This was a factory three forty car, you know, hot little car. It's not a but it's not a real it's not one of those it's not a Mopar gym like the 70 Cuda or a Challenger RT nope. six-pack or even a TA nope. Challengers or a, you know, Hemi Charger. It's a, it's a dark yeah. swinger with a mop top. It's, a, it's unreal. Yep. <laughs> 400,000, Kevin. It could be considered feminine, but, uh, you know, it is a part of Mopar history, and it's a part of the pop art lore of what was going on. Peter Max, pop art, late 60s. Um, you know, that's that's kind of what was happening, and, that car probably represented that era automotive-wise better than any other single car. I got to think that's what drove. Well, that's what's so exciting, I think, about watching the auctions is you don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know where prices are going to go. You you see a wonderful car, and you think, that's amazing, and it just stalls. And you're like, what? What happened with that? Or, you know, one of these great builders, you know? You know, the, the Chip Fuses or Troy Chipanias or whatever out there. Uh, you know, maybe Chip's probably not a great one because I'm sure his stuff goes, if it goes, goes pretty high. But, you know, so many great builders and you think, where did that go? And then you see this Dodge Dart, you know, like just flying through the roof that has, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. And, and there's so many factions of, of what's going on in there. And you're trying to figure out as either the viewer or, you know, another buyer, like who's in this game? What are they in this game for? Are they a collector? Are they just trying to ego? Are they trying to, you know, am I missing something? Should I be bidding higher? That's all ego, man. Wow. 400 grand. That is that is nothing but ego, dude. They drove big pickup trucks with big lifts. <laughs> That's wow. an ego battle royale. That's awesome. So, all right, John, what, in your opinion, if you could reverse time and, and wrap your hands around and arms around one single car, what would it be? And then the second part of that question is, what are cars that people can go out and wrap their arms around nowadays that are still fairly affordable that you see 
are going to start coming into some value. And you know how that chart goes. You, you pull up the graph, and for years it'll just stay pretty steady. And all of a sudden, a movie, a trend, pop culture, like you said, gets a hold of it. People start seeing or acknowledging a body type they didn't before. And all of a sudden, whoosh. I'm, you know, I'm kind of seeing that with first-gen charges right now. Oh, man. Yeah. What's happening right now is, as generationally, as things are chugging along, you know, a lot of people say, well, what's the future of the collector car market going to be like with the traditional buyer, the baby boomer buyer that's sort of invented this and has been really uh, uh, stimulating this market? But the reality is, is everybody's aging at the same rate. And it's really more so the age of a potential buyer with his financial capability, frankly. So. It's a good question. What is what is out there as a tr- for possible down the road trend that's affordable right now? And what you what I'm going to say, how I'm going to answer, may or may not surprise you. And it's going to have very little to do with cars, other than maybe some Asian cars, but it's going to have more to do probably with trucks and SUVs from an era that right now is a little bit off the radar screen. We know about the popularity of 50s and 60s pickup trucks, C10 Chevys. 67 through 72 white hot Broncos, first generation Broncos, 66. Broncos are wild, wild. But if you if you jump up a little bit, if you jump up to the 70s and the 1980s, trucks, SUVs, we put them in the same category. They're still affordable. So what you're going to want to do, and they are nostalgic because they do have a vintage look, and they look more and more vintage all the time as trucks get bigger, more luxurious, etc. These really begin to stand out, and they have not yet kind of hit that, hit those kind of levels of demand and ultimately pricing. So I've been recommending the past year or two, don't be afraid to go into the 70s and 1980s on a nice pickup truck or SUV. Condition is everything. Of course, if it's a little, if it's a little rough around the edges and it's priced accordingly, that can be a good buy too. So that's where I see one market we're going to continue to keep an eye on. And then the other thing are select imports, you know. There's a generation of auto enthusiasts now that's yeah, man. Um, Skylines, GTRs, yeah, yeah. But you know, there there aren't a lot of those cars. Typically, the market. I'm going to repeat myself: supply and demand. But there weren't a lot of those cars imported to the U.S. or sold new. Uh, Super is a good example. Early Acura NSXs. If they're in great condition and they're original, in other words, not modified, but most of them were. Those are the ones that really break the bank. So you might want to be on the lookout for one of those cars as well. And then finally, the standard bears of the 1980s, still affordable and great cars, Fox body Mustangs and the GMF bodies, the Camaros and the Pontiac Firebirds and the variations of those in the 1980s. Look, they're fuel injected. They've got V8s, they're four-wheel disc brakes right from the factory typically. You can buy those cars cheap, sub $10,000 for nice cars, and I think they're going to go up in the future. Yeah, those third-gen Camaros have skyrocketed in value. I couldn't believe it the other day when I, when I saw a graph on what those things are worth now. Yep, and going up every day, but they're still, they're still affordable. Right now, they're still affordable, and they're good cars. They're satisfying cars to drive, and they've got clean, crisp, timeless styling. And I'll put the Fox Body Mustang in there as well, but you want a nice one, unmodified. Kevin had a hot Camaro when he was in high school. <laughs> yeah, my first car was a, was a third gen. And all the ladies go with it. And I'm not missing it. I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe I will at some point. <laughs> hey, but Kevin, 
Kevin John's not kidding, man. Those cars and Fox Body Mustangs, we just did a Fox Body on the show to see what those cars have done and value. I mean, it is amazing to see those cars, especially from that era that, you know, like you can still go get at a fairly affordable price. Those cars are really coming around in value. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to watch because, um, you know, we all have our favorites, you know, and I think in that 90s era, you know, 80s when I grew up, uh, you know, in cars, I was looking backwards, you know, I was so into the 60s and 70s, you know, early 70s cars, but, you know, so many people, and I, you know, I had a third gen, but it didn't stick with me, you know, I'm not dying to have one, but so many of my friends, right, had a, you know, an F body or had a Fox body and they're like, man, I would love to have a super clean, built like this, headers, cam, you know, just like I had it in high school, you know, or college or whatever. I got it. I've been to Kevin's house. It is true. He has a black velvet picture of an 86 IROC with a black light poster <laughs> above his bed. He, it's, I, I, I dropped by, I saw it. It's, uh, it's, it, it happened. <laughs> so, you know, when, when you see some of these cars and, you know, I got to tell you those square body Chevy pickup trucks like you were talking yeah. about, you know, there's a couple in my neighborhood. There's a couple Broncos in my neighborhood that I've got dibs on. I can't believe those, those trucks and SUVs and those platforms how they have come around and not just come around. I mean, Broncos are, are bringing 60, 70, $80,000. It's crazy. I know. I know. I'm not a truck guy myself, but I understand what's happening. And here's what I think is driving it. What are the best-selling product lines from the Detroit 3? Trucks, not cars, trucks, to the, to the current market. So trucks are part of, they're part of the new car market. And I think somebody that has one, a lot of guys own a truck for the practicality of it or whatever, or the image of it or a combination of the two, reliability, long-term reliability. Trucks are overbuilt. You run them light. They run forever. So people look, they look to, they say, well, I want something old. I want something cool. And there's trucks are starting to be more and more accepted, sought after. Prices are going to go up. It's pretty much guaranteed predictable. What about on the German side of the coin? Because I feel like, you know, the E46 BMW platform, there's some AMG Mercedes, there's, you know, the BMW that 850, I just got my hands on an 850i, a 1991 850 B12, they weren't very powerful, but those cars, you know, I'm seeing really big, you know, values go through the roof on this, some of these cars, and like you said, some of the Japanese cars, because they finally crossed that 20 or 25 year threshold, we can start importing those, yeah. I, I can't wait till those get into the market and you're able to get your hands on some of these things. Here's what's going to be interesting to watch on that. Your BMW is probably the prime example. And that is, um, are we going to have parts availability, technical support, knowledge to know how to keep something like that going on a reliable basis? Certainly dealing with what we've talked about so far, um, Fox Body Mustangs, the 80s uh, F-Body GM cars, anything in an American pickup truck, mechanically keeping them going, no problem. Very straightforward. Um, but some of that stuff, some of the some of the Asian and European stuff is going to be, especially the more complicated ones, is going to be a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, not insurmountable, uh, but that I think is that more than anything else holding the price down right now a little bit. Um, I'd be hesitant to recommend uh, those cars as a long-term investment. I wouldn't say no, but I'd be just a little bit hesitant. Make sure you know what you're getting into. And I'm going to repeat myself again. Buy a good one, buy something that has not been modified, low miles, good history, good maintenance records, and with, with it's a good starting point, that's going to have the best success, I think, long term. Man, there's some wisdom in those words, man. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, what are things that people that want to sell their car at an auction, what are the most important key ingredients to getting a good price on the car? What, in your opinion, is something that you guys, as you know, commentators on the show, always look at? I mean, obviously, fit and finish, paint, and so forth, but are there little things that people can do that can drive the price of their car? Hey, I got this one, Willie. Start with a really cool car, <laughs> and you'll get a good price. Uh, uh, Foot you know? pedal, gas, uh, gas pedal. <laughs> you know there are there are a couple of key things, and this this would work even past where if you're just going to sell the car outright. And number one would be to be prepared to deal with potential buyers um, in advance of the car coming to the auction. It's it's all about the promotion, a good write up, great photos, having information out there because people will. I mean, with the way the internet is now and the way social media is, word travels really fast. And you don't have to sell your car within your local area or local region. At our auctions, we've got a lot of absentee telephone or internet buyers that have been exposed to a certain car, a certain color combination or whatever they've been looking for. And they're not afraid to kind of do it by remote control. Hey, my Hemi Charger went, my Hemi Charger went on the phone. <laughs> Some guy in California or something bought it over the phone. I was like, oh, bye. Yep, they're a perfect <laughs> example. So that's a real important factor to understand. You need to have really good photos, good information. If you're going to bring it to an auction, get it entered early, at least two months in advance, preferably four months in advance. That gives the car a lot of time to be exposed to the market, but it can't be sold before the auction. That's what's different about a car you might be looking at outright uh, advertised somewhere. You're always worried about the car getting sold out from underneath it. An auction car um, our contract does not allow somebody to sell the car before it arrives at the auction venue. So it gives everybody at levels of playing field, gets everybody a chance to bid on it. And the better the car, like Kev said, start with a great car early, uh, entry into the auction, advanced promotion, good photos, a great accurate write-up once the car gets to the auction, being by the car, talking about it, making a potential buyer feel good about the history of the car, what's been done to it. Not trying to be, not trying to oversell it, but just to give potential buyer a good feeling uh, about the car, as opposed to just a car sitting there all by itself. These are some of the things that really make the difference. You want to get top dollar. These are some of the clues that you want to, you know, you want to utilize in your strategy. And a lot of people listening to the podcast want to know because this is the biggest question you guys have: Should they sell it reserve or no reserve? Listen carefully, guys, because this is key. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, that's a big one. That is a big question. Um, advantages, disadvantages of both. Let me hit on uh, advantage, uh, ad advantage on both ends. With reserve, which means there's a protected price, you're under no obligation to sell the car, but doesn't hit a magic number, takes a lot of the stress, takes a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the worry out of it. But a car that is selling at no reserve does a couple things that are an advantage to potential uh, seller. Number one is it's going to put more tension on the car. As an example, we might have four or six bidders on every car that rolls up on the block with reserve. Without reserve, we probably have anywhere between 15 and 30 bidders on it. Many of them are going to bid low, hoping to kind of steal the thing. But the scientific data that we have on the way this bidding dynamic is the more bidders you have on any given car, regardless of the reason, the higher price it's going to bring. But an even more important, a lot of people don't know and realize, and that's what you pay at commissions and fees. A no-reserve car at a Mecham auction, can't speak for other auctions, 
and Amica Auction, no reserve reflect a 60% commission of the hammer price. If it sells with reserve, it's a 10%. So if you bring a car, you know you're going to sell it, you need to sell it, it's time to make it go away, we call it a one-way trip, you really want to consider going no reserve. I can tell you, and you know, uh, uh, you guys both may or may not have experience with dealing in a no reserve versus a reserve situation. There's no way to compare what it would have done if you'd have done it both ways. There's no way to know how much it would have brought if you sell it no reserve, uh, as an example, versus selling it with reserve, because every single one of these vintage cars is different. There's comparables, and we can get a general idea, but there's no way to exactly say, well, mine should have brought this because this one brought this. And so putting out there no reserve, I personally, honestly, I'm a fan of no reserve at a reserve auction. Now, some of the auctions run all no reserve. And I'd have to really think about that. But at a reserve auction, if I'm a motivated seller, I'm going to go no reserve. There you go, man. Wise words. So, hey, just want to tell you, thank you so much, man. You've always been such a great spirit, car person, friend. We've done a lot of shows together, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to just, you know, teach everybody, to educate people on the Two Guys Garage podcast, man. It's great having you. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Man, I'm telling you, Bert, if you ever get a chance, go check out one of the auctions. Even better, I know you don't want to sell your cars because they're gorgeous and they're awesome, but if you ever have to, you'll, uh, you'll definitely enjoy just the spotlight that that auction will bring to them. Okay, well, first, I'm going to hope that I never have to. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then I started, I got to get my mind around letting something go. Ugh. Yeah, dude, that's, that is hard. Because some of these things are labor of love, man. Yeah, for sure. I'll be honest, man. I regret letting that Hemi Charger go. I'm like, ah, oh, man, if I had to do it over again, I'd keep it. <laughs> I'd sell another one. But at the same time, I picked up a couple cars at the auction that was great. So all in all, the weekend, you know, it worked out as a bonus for me. So... I can't complain with that, man. And it is something just stupid, thrilling about whether you're buying or you're selling, just being a part of that, that energy. All right, man. We got to set up a road trip. Let me know. We'll go. We'll go. <laughs> All right, man. We'll bring some cash whether right. we spend it or not. That's a different story. Exactly. Always wise. And enough money to get us out of jail. Hey, yeah. don't forget about our TV show, man. Two Guys Garage. It is on the Motor Train Network. Check your local listings. Episodes also now streaming on Motor Train On Demand. Kind of cool. Again, thanks to our guest, John Kramen. My man, Kevin Burdine. Will he be our producer, Scoop, and our executive producer, Bob Ecker. And you wouldn't believe we've got our very own website crazy twoguysgarage.com tons of great automotive content down there check us out clips from our shows you name it and share your thoughts with us on social because we are everywhere facebook instagram and twitter at two guys garage two guys garage podcast is a copyright 2020 britain productions incorporated all rights reserved i'm probably out in your garage right now drinking beer all right till the next two guys garage <laughs> podcast we'll see you soon all right folks have a great one catch you on the next one Two Guys Garage Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.